It's wonderful to be with you guys this morning. Uh, my name's Tony. If we have not had the pleasure of meeting, and if we haven't met and you have the courage, uh, please reach out to me. I would love to get to know you, go on a walk, hang out a little bit. Now, right now, we're in a series. We're sort of doing this high-level review of the Old Testament. We're going to kind of stick it out for most of this year. And right now, we're in week four, right? We've done Genesis 1, 2, 3. And today, we're entering life east of Eden in Genesis 4. And this morning, what I'd like to do is connect the dots between Genesis 4 and Genesis 6, which is sort of the road that leads to the flood. And what I'm going to do is sort of capture it by highlighting the major characters in Genesis 4, 5, and 6, or the beginning of 6. Now, to set this off, I want to offer a comparison. I'd like you to remember August of 2020. I know it's not like your favorite season, probably, to remember. We're about four and a half months, five months into COVID, and then all of a sudden, there are these freak lightning storms, which then leads to these massive wildfires. And then, you know, we wake up on the Monterey Peninsula, and it's snowing outside, except for it's not snow, it's ash. And, in, and now, we, right, we were in shelter in place, now we literally can't leave our homes because it is snowing ash outside. And I think most of us have this feeling of, it was bad, it is now worse. It's this feeling of things are just going from bad to worse. And I think most of us emotionally like know that feeling in August. And the truth is, Genesis 4 through 6 is kind of that same experience. Things going from bad, right? We're, we're just east of Eden, it's after the fall, to worse. Genesis 4 uh, starts immediately after Adam and Eve leave or are kicked out of Eden and it begins with the story of the first family, right? Adam and Eve, they have two children, Cain and Abel. Cain works the ground. Abel is a shepherd. And the text reads, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain... And his offering, he had no regard. What's interesting, the first story after the fall is about worship. What does it look like to worship God outside of Eden? And something unexpected happens, right? Cain's offering is not regarded. And the text doesn't exactly tell us why, right? Why does God have regard for one offering and not the other? Though the author, author of Hebrews offers us a clue. This is Hebrews 11.4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. And if you look at the whole context of Hebrews 11, it's all about faith. It seems to imply that Abel's motive was different, right? He had a faith in his offering that Cain didn't have. What's clear, though, in Genesis 4 is the author actually wants us to focus not on God's motivation but on Cain's reaction, because that's where the bulk of the story concentrates. The text reads, 
So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So what we learn here, right, is Cain's offering is not accepted, and his emotional response is anger. Cain is mad. Notice what God does. He asks him a question. Why are you mad, Cain? Why don't, why don't we talk about it? Right? God invites Cain into a conversation. The other day, I was um, talking on the phone, right? In COVID, I do a lot of phone calls. And I was on my street, but a few blocks up. And I'm talking on the phone uh, to one of you, probably. And, uh, you know, I'm walking. And this person comes out of their house and starts this older woman and just starts yelling at me. I'm trying to read here, can you? And I'm just like, whoa. I have to admit, like my first response was anger. Like, why is this woman screaming at me because she isn't maybe having the quiet space she had hoped to have? You know, it's like, I would talk on the phone in my house if I could, but my kids are in school right now. The point of this story is, right, psychologists tell us that anger is a response when our expectations are not met, right? And my response was anger to this woman. This woman's response to me was anger. Both of us, our expectations were not met. And in the story of Cain, right, his anger reveals that his expectations were not met. I think he expected God to receive his offering. He expected maybe something different of Abel. And God wants to talk to him about it. He wants to talk to him about his expectations and what wasn't met and his resulting anger. But this is the thing. Cain won't do it. And this is concerning. So God tells Cain that sin is crouching at the door, verse 7. Now, in the ancient world, there's this idea that like demon, demon beasts would guard the entrance of certain buildings. And here, right, the author is saying the first time sin is ever mentioned in the Bible, sin is personified as this crouching demon, a beast on the doorstep of Cain's life. And its desire is to wreak havoc. And God asked Cain, are you going to let it? I want to take a second just to sort of pause the story and focus on this word, sin. If you've been at church a while, you've heard it. You've probably, if, you've ne- if this is your first time ever attending church, you probably have heard this word. But what does it mean contextually, right? This is the first time this word ever comes up in the Bible. So what is the context in which it is used? Well, so far, humanity has been asked to bear God's image in the world. And we talked about this when we talked about Genesis 1, right? To bear God's image is to be God's representative on earth. But here Cain, God is saying to Cain, right, as God's image bearer, If you don't take seriously your unmet expectations, Cain, you're going to fail 
to bear God's image faithfully in the world. Right? This is why sin later on is called missing the mark. Humanity is called to bear God's image, and when we don't, we miss the mark. We miss the invitation of God to bear His image in the world, right? To miss the mark brings up this idea of archery, right? You're shooting for the bullseye. To miss the mark is not just to miss the target, but the hay bill, right, behind it. Also important to recognize, though, that to bear God's image is to be fully human. In Genesis 1, to be human is to bear God's image. There is no distinction. Therefore, to sin is actually to become less human. There's a movie that really captures this, or a trilogy. Anyone here a fan of Lord of the Rings? Right? The, the experience, the transformation of Smeagol. Right? Smeagol's a hobbit. He hangs out in community. He's with these other hobbits. Right? And then he finds this ring. And eventually, he becomes this creature, Gollum, who lives in a cave all by himself. Right? And this is what sin does. It transforms us. It separates us from those we love. Gollum is the personification of what happens when sin rules our lives. It transforms us and separates us. The first thing that happens when Adam and Eve eat the fruit is they are separated from one another, they're separated from God, and they're separated even from the animal kingdom. Right? And God is saying to Cain, hey, Cain, you have a choice. Sin is crouching at the door. What are you going to do? God invites him to be present to his emotional reaction, right, and his unmet expectations. But Cain rejects that invitation. Verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. Right? He doesn't speak to God. God asks him to talk. Instead, Cain spoke to his brother Abel. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. This is the first family in the Bible. These are the first attempts at worship east of Eden, and they end in death. And just like in Genesis 3, when God arrives on the scene, right, after Adam and Eve had eaten the fruit, He says, you know, where are you? So here. God arrives just after the scene, right? And he asks Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And just like Adam, right, God is inviting Cain to take responsibility for what he's done. And you can feel already that things are going from bad to worse. Adam and Eve ate a piece of fruit. Cain murders his brother. Adam and Eve, or Adam tells a half truth. Cain tells a bold lie. Verse 9. I don't know where he is. He literally just finished burying his brother that he killed. I don't know where he is. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Cain overstates his responsibility towards his brother in order to deny it completely. 
Cain wasn't expected to keep his brother. To keep is to keep your eye on someone all day long, 24-7 responsibility. That was not the invitation Cain had towards Abel. But he certainly should have been there for him, cared for him, not murdered him. And his outright denial of any responsibility for his brother shows how much more hardened he is than Adam and Eve. And in response, verse 11, God curses Cain. Now, Cain now is the first human being to be cursed in the Bible. And he banishes him. Now, Cain, he's overwhelmed. Verse 13, my punishment, God, is greater than I can bear. And this is another consequence of sin. In the Old Testament, sin is often sort of pictured as this heavy burden. It's why when we get to the law on the Day of Atonement, when the people's sins are sort of atoned for or taken, or, um, sort of taken care of, what they do is they place the burden of sin on a goat, and then the goat walks outside the community as a way to say, okay, the goat now takes the burden of sin outside the community. That's why when we feel like guilty of something, often we say to someone, hey, I just need to take something off my chest. I need to share with you, right? Because we need to take that burden off of our chest. Sin is a weight. And ultimately, it's one of the reasons that Jesus in the New Testament is presented as a burden-bearing Savior. Tell me if you remember this line. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened. And what? I will give you rest. What does the burden-bearing Savior do? He comes in to a broken and fallen world, and He takes the weight of sin off of us, onto Himself, dies on the cross, so that we do not have to carry the burden of sin anymore. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. The story begins with worship. In verse 16, the author writes, Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Right? God follows Adam and Eve outside the garden, east of Eden. Now, here we are. We're east of Eden. We're outside the garden. We're with the first family. And now Cain is driven even farther from God's presence. Where does he go? Further east. But the truth is, as the story unfolds, things just get worse. Later in chapter 4, we're introduced to a character named Lamech. He's like Cain, but like on steroids. He's amplified. Lamech is so violent that he's preserved about, he's, what is preserved about him is a saying that he says. Verses 23 and 24. Adah and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Right, as we go forward in the law, what we'll see right, is that vengeance is allowed, right? but it's an eye for an eye. It's a tooth for a tooth right? as we go into the law in the Torah. Lamech is so vindictive 
that he pays people back 77 times. And what the author is signaling is, hey guys, things are going from bad to worse. Cain killed his brother. Lamech kills anyone who gets in his way. Now, while Genesis 5 has some really interesting genealogical stuff, which Aaron and I actually talk about in Cutting Room Floor, so I invite you to check it out, I want to jump to the beginning of chapter 6. Because in chapter 6, people are filling the earth, right? In Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply. And that's happening. And the text reads, verses 1 and 2 in chapter 6, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive and they took them as their wives any they chose. Now, we read that and we think, what's the big deal? Like, what's going on there? Now, Aaron and I, again, we're going to talk about this idea of sons of God in Cutting Room Floor this next week. So, I'll leave, I'll leave that for then. What I want to focus on here is something that I think we miss most times we read this text. I want to focus on three words, saw, good, and took. Now, these are the three words, the action words, right, that describe what happens in Genesis 3, 6 when Eve decides to pluck the fruit. Let me read it. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to desire to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Saw good took. And these are actually the exact same words that are applied now in Genesis 6. The sons of God saw. What do they see? They see that these women are attractive. Now, in English, that's the translation. In Hebrew, the word is tov or good. It's the exact same word as Genesis 3, 6. They saw good. And what do they do? They took them as wives. And what the author is trying to tell us is that these sons of gods are just doing what is right in their own eyes just as Eve did, right? God looks out at the expanse of all He's made in Genesis 1, and He sees that it's good, right? Then what happens with Eve? She sees it's good, and she takes. Now that's repeating again in Genesis 6. What the author is trying to tell us is they're just doing their own thing. They have no concern for God. Which then leads us to God's reaction. Now, to appreciate it, we need to remember back in Genesis 1, right? Each day, God makes something good and says in the text, right? Ah, man, that is good. Now, as we enter chapter 6, God looks out, and what does he see? In verse 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. Right? Before, he looks out and it's good. Now he looks out and what does he see? Evil, distress, injury, violence. Right? He looks into the mind and the heart of humankind and says, he only sees evil. Now, I want to do just sort of a quick riff on modern culture because Often what we do, like in modern culture, if something is evil, we think, oh yeah, Cain, Lamech, that's evil, that's violence. But we disconnect 
a lot of things from what we understand to be evil, like what's so big a deal about seeing, taking, and doing your own thing? That's not a big deal. Right? But from a biblical side, when we see the story of the Scriptures, they don't make that same disconnection. Good and evil are more like alignment and lack of alignment with Jesus and His kingdom, with God and what it looks like to bear His image in the world. Right? So whether you're doing your own thing or you're violent, the question is not simply like, does it hurt? someone else? Is it obviously verifiable that that caused damage or hurt someone? The question is, are you aligned with what it looks like to bear God's image in the world? Are you aligned with Jesus and His kingdom? So whether you go your own way or you're violent, both of those could be considered evil from a biblical perspective. Good and evil are not about sort of our perceptions of harm or no harm, They are about alignment or lack of alignment with the heart of God. In the Hebrew word, it says this word, the intentions of man's heart, right? Intention. Now, this word is a really interesting word. It's actually the same root as the root that's used for potters when they mold clay, right? When they they form a cup or a basin or whatever, right? They have an intention, and what, what the author is saying is that when God looks out, the intentions of man's heart are evil. He's saying he's sort of like molding. Humans are molding in their minds and their hearts their own thing. They're molding evil according to their own desires. And if we fast forward a bit, this idea of centering evil and the potential for evil in the human heart, the center of personality in, the, in Hebraic anthropology, If we fast forward to Jesus and the New Testament, what does he say, right? He says that sin also comes from the human heart. Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, right? Sin isn't out there. We often do this in the church. We think, oh, sin's out there, right? If only we could eliminate a certain group of enemies, we could eliminate sin, whether they're political or ideological or relational. If we could just get rid of them, we would deal with sin. But what Genesis 4 tells us is that sin is crouching at the door of the human heart. And the question is whether or not we will let it in. Verse 6, we see the consequence of this for God. He says this, It grieved him to his heart. There's a contrast here, right? The heart of God is grieved, while the heart of humankind is evil. I also want you to just pay attention to this. The first time that God responds, right, to violence, human beings going their own way and doing their own thing, when God responds emotionally, what what is the response, right? It's grief not anger. Actually, the first time that God gets angry in the Bible is with Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 14. Moses is at the burning bush and God is saying, help me rescue my people from slavery. And Moses is like, "Eh, I'm not sure I can help. That is when God gets angry. Like Cain's anger, God's grief tells us something. It tells us that God is experiencing loss. 
Right? Grief tells us we have lost something. Humans are created to be in relationship with God. Right? The first day they're created, right? The next day, day seven, they get to go on holiday with God. They take a vacation with God. God wants to be in relationship. And yet, by Genesis 6, humans have just gone and done their own thing. Right? They're doing what they want, independent of any consideration of God. And this grieves God. I remember the first time I held Claire, my daughter, when she was born. I remember the first time I held Josiah when he was born. And I remember in those moments saying, like, man, I never realized how much God loved me until I held that tiny human being in my hands, and I knew man, I will never love anyone or anything <laughs> like this. And I think what Genesis 4 through 6 is telling us is that is how God sees us. And Genesis 4 through 6 is the disappointment and grief God experiences as a result of His love and affection for us when we just go and do our own thing. God experiences grief and loss. God hoped, I think, east of Eden, that humankind would live differently. I think this is why, in Genesis 5, the author tucks in these few lines about Enoch in this extended genealogy. And if you read it, Genesis 5, like there's this repetition after every person, and he died. Next person, and he died. Next person, and he died. And you can almost be like lulled to sleep by the repetition of all these people dying. There's one exception. It says that Enoch was no more because God took him away. Genesis 5.24. So what's unique about Enoch? What is he doing? The author repeats twice in verses 22 and 24, Enoch walked with God. And this phrase, walked with God, clearly has special meaning for the author because it's exactly how he describes Noah. Right, when he looks out at the world and says, who am I going to keep alive, right, during the flood, it's Noah. Why? Verse 6-9, he walked with God. Right, Enoch, in this season when things are going from bad to worse, is an example of someone who finds life and relational connection with God after the fall, east of Eden. How? By walking with God. Presumably, just like Adam and Eve did in the garden with God with the afternoon breeze. I don't think it's coincidental then when we fast forward to the New Testament that Jesus doesn't call his disciples, right, to, hey guys, this is number one. I want you to follow the rules or believe the right doctrine. Those are important, clearly. But what is the first thing that Jesus asked his disciples to do? He approaches the Sea of Galilee. Peter and John are in their fishing nets, right, working on their boats. What does he say to them? Follow me. Walk with me. Right, and they have a choice. Are they going to continue doing their own thing or are they going to partner and walk with God? Right? And when you read through the rest of the New Testament, Paul is constantly riffing on this. To the Galatians, the Romans, and the Colossians, he says, walk with God. 
right? Peter, as he's writing to the churches in Turkey, he says to them, follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Walk with him, right? In a broken and a fallen world, the path to life with God is not just to do our own thing, but to walk with him. Right now, as we shift from Genesis 4 through 6 into everyday life, how do we apply this? Like, how do we make sense of it? Two big things I want to sort of riff on. The first, I think, is a major theme in Genesis 4 through 6, and it's this idea of like doing our own thing, doing what is right in our own eyes, versus putting God central. And I think there's a couple ways to capture this. One of the things we talk about at Wellspring regularly is this difference between bounded set and centered set, right? So bounded set uh, is an image that you're either sort of in or you're out. This idea of like, you know, if you do the right things, think the right things, go to church every Sunday, you're good, brush your shoulders off, you rock it. And there's some truth in that, right? Like there is a sense in which in the scriptures we are in or out. But it generally leads to stagnation. As long as you can check the box, you feel awesome. Another way to view the spiritual life is centered set. Right? Jesus and his kingdom are in the middle, and the question is not whether you're in or out, but the question is, are you moving closer? Are you facing towards Jesus, or are you just kind of doing your own thing? Right? If you imagine yourself right now, Imagine Jesus is in the center. Are you close to him? Are you far away? Are you facing him? Are you turned away from him? And when Jesus, or when God goes into the garden after the fall, the first thing he asks Adam and Eve is, where are you? Do you know this morning where you are? I think one of the keys to addressing the downward spiral of sin that we see in Genesis 4-6 is to reorient and make sure that Jesus is in the center. Now, I think for some of you, you know, I think it's quite possible to attend church over the years and never actually commit to putting Jesus at the center. Commit to saying, no matter what, God, I am going to walk with you. No matter what, I'm going to walk towards you. You God, are the king of my heart. I think it is possible to show up every Sunday and never actually commit in your heart, right? The heart is the center of the human person in the biblical narrative. To actually commit in your heart, saying, Jesus, I want to worship you above all things. I want to put you first. I want you to put you before everything. I just want to invite you. If you have never done that. I think this is the first and most essential step of the spiritual life. It's the proud, profound reorientation that we call conversion. Now, if you're not sure what that looks like, it's really simple. It's in worship. It's right now. It's just saying to Jesus, God, I want you to be the center. I want you to be the king of my life. I want to walk with you every day. I want to walk towards you always. Now, I think for some of us, we've made that decision. 
They're like, yes. But the truth is, as Genesis 4, 6 tells, 4 through 6 tells us, right, it's easy to get caught up in the downward spiral of the sin of the world. It's easy to get caught up in the fallen and broken ways of the world. And I think in our culture, at its core, that's like simply saying, I'm just going to do whatever I want. I'm going to do what seems right in my own eyes. And what happens is we get off course. At one point, Jesus was the center, and then all of a sudden, we're going a different way. In the biblical narrative, turning back to Jesus is called repentance. And this is not something you do once in your life. This is something you do constantly, reorienting your life and your heart to Jesus, who is meant to be the center of everything. I think some of us, this morning, need to realign our heart, turn back to Jesus, and start moving towards Him again. I think many of us in COVID have just kind of drifted and lost our center. And this morning, one of the ways that we deal with the downward spiral of sin in our life is to reorient, turn back to Jesus. And one of the cool things about this, right, is we just turn back and we start talking again. Right, the very thing that Cain was unable to do. Right, God said, you know, Cain, what's going on? What are you feeling? Cain just kept doing his own thing. We have an opportunity when we gather this morning to turn back to Jesus and talk with him, which brings me to my second point. Right, Cain is invited to talk to God about his anger, right, about his unmet expectations, but he doesn't. I think my question to us is, do we? Do we use our internal reactions, our emotional responses as a launching pad into God's presence? Or do we feel these things and then not want to deal with them and then just sort of do our own thing? Right? And then these responses internally actually become wedges between us and the presence of God. Right? When we feel sad? Do we use this as an opportunity actually to slow down into the presence of Jesus and be healed? When we feel jealous, do we use this as an opportunity to talk with God about our desires that maybe are being unmet? When we feel happy, do we use this as a reminder, a springboard into gratefulness, into thankfulness to God in His presence, right? This is central to what it means to walk with God. But this requires two things. One, it requires an emotional awareness, a sense of, oh, I know what's actually going on in me. And then two, a willingness to face whatever that is and actually bring it into the presence of Jesus. Now, full disclosure, like in my experience, Christians... Hopefully this, you know, isn't off-putting. I, I certainly put myself in this boat. Is we're often not that emotionally aware. I mean, there are exceptions, totally, but I think many of us are not super aware of what is going on in us. So what do we do? Well, I'll tell you. This is sort of embarrassing, uh, but this is sort of my experience lately, reflecting on this text and others. I just realized, like, I am actually not very good at this. I think I am, but really I'm not. And so what I did a few weeks ago is I bought one of these, or bought, I just found, there's these emotion wheels you can get 
online. Just search Emotion Wheel PDF in Google, and it'll pull up this Emotion Wheel. It has all these emotions, and what I find is I just, when I, each day, like, I have, I, like, have an interaction with someone, and I feel like, I'm not sure what I'm feeling. I'll bring out this little wheel, and it'll tell me, oh, Tony, you probably feel this. And I'm like, oh. And then what I'm able to do is using this little preschool tool, right, I take that, and then I, it helps me enter into conversation with Jesus. What I've realized is I need these sort of rudimentary little tools to actually help me to be aware so that I can walk and talk with Jesus about what's really going on in me. Right? And this actually helps us to deal with sin that is crouching at the door. Right? If you go back, go into the New Testament and you read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, what you'll see is that he is often connecting our internal experience with our external behavior, what we do in the world. Right? There's this inner intimate connection. Right? Pay attention to your anger so it doesn't lead to murder, Cain and New Testament folks. Right? Pay attention to your anxiety because that will likely lead to greed if you are not attentive. Right? Jesus is constantly saying, pay attention to your heart because out of your heart flows sin. And guess what? Out of your heart also flows faithfulness. The author of Hebrews uh, in chapter 11 will say, the pleasures of sin are fleeting. There's an acknowledgement there. Sometimes sin, doing our own thing, feels good, but it's momentary. Psalm 1611. But in your presence, God, is the fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Right? The scriptures tell us if we want joy, if we want pleasure, it is not found doing our own thing. It is found as we set Jesus at the center of our lives. It is found as we process what is going on in us in the presence of God and walk with God through daily life. Because that is where pleasure and joy truly reside. Do you believe that, church? If you do, I invite you today, put Jesus back at the center. I invite you today, take what is going on in you, and as a daily discipline, use that as a springboard into Jesus' presence. Let's pray together. God, you are good. God, you are holy. And God, we recognize that you have designed our earth, and God, we want to submit to your design. God, we know that it is in you that joy and pleasure and life are found and we don't want to get caught in the downward spiral of sin. God, we don't want to carry the burden of sin. God, we want to be free in you. God, help us. Jesus, you are the Savior of the world. You are the one who breaks the power of sin. God, set us free. God, set us free that we might walk with you. God, set us free that we might worship you east of Eden, God, without sin.
without the destruction of sin. God, may we have the courage to bring what is truly going on in us into your presence. That we might receive healing. That we might receive the true pleasure and joy that we are looking for. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. It's good to be with you guys. Pray that Jesus guides you and leads you in the days to come. I want to invite Aaron up. He has a few things to share about things that are going on in the life of our body. And again, I just want to say, like, if we haven't met up, let's go for a walk.